Hey everyone, Eric Torenberg here. We just launched a new show, The Leader Series Podcast, with General Assembly co-founder and thesis-driven editor, Brad Hargreaves. Thesis Driven is the top newsletter publication for real estate change makers, and the first season of the podcast builds on top of that, with 12 interviews with the leading voices at the intersection of real estate, cities, innovation, and technology. We'll cover how technology is going to shape real estate investing over the coming years, what new sectors and consumer preferences changes mean for real estate development, and how entrepreneurs might be able to play to these trends. The first episode is out now. Search Thesis Driven on any podcast app today or visit the link in the description. Welcome to The Riff, where writer and investor Bern Hobart and I discuss the major inflection points caused by technological change. Our weekly conversation covers the obvious and not so obvious ways in which markets and businesses will adapt as a result. Let's jump right in. Burn, how's it going? Pretty good, pretty good. How are you? Awesome. Uh, do, doing great. Uh, excited to excited to chat with you today. I want to go into your capital gains uh, newsletter a bit. Um, why don't you first talk about the inspiration for why uh, why, why create a separate a separate or kind of adjacent newsletter? Yeah, sure. So um, I have uh, an associate who works with me on um, a lot of different things, growth stuff, backend stuff. This was his brainchild. So thank you for that, Darius. Um, and yeah, the basic idea, one of the concerns with the diff that I've had for a long time is this question of what to what to explain and what to leave unexplained. I always have this feeling if I'm reading, say, the Wall Street Journal and it explains what a convertible bond is, I... I always have this this worry that there is there is some other fancier uh, publication that covers the same things and assumes that everyone in the audience knows what a convertible bond is, but um, no one is going to have all of the same concepts in their head. And certainly, I'm you know more more fluent with financial products than say with um, with tech stacks. And so, um, the idea for capital gains was um, we can separate these explanations from the main text, and instead of either having you know, a brief description of what a convertible bond is that doesn't answer all the questions that maybe everyone, you know, the readers who trade convertible bonds for a living or have issued them themselves will, will send in corrections saying you're oversimplifying. And then other people who are not super familiar with finance, they'll, they'll read it and they'll, they'll still have a lot of lingering questions. So I was like, well, why not just write out the long form? Like, here's an explanation. Um, and, you know, there, there are sites that do that. So you can check Investopedia and, um, you know, you'll actually like Investopedia is the content is decent. Like it, it does explain the concepts and they're great at SEO, but I felt like there's, there's more to do. So, um, yeah, we spun that up earlier this year and uh, I think it was earlier this year. Um, anyway, it's, uh, it, it's been running and it's, it's a fun one because a lot of the stuff that gets into capital gains is just less, less time sensitive and, um, you know, less, less reactive. It's more just what is, what is the reference that I'll, you know, that I wish I had and um, now I have it. So, you know, I talk about, talk about different, um, lots of different things like um, everything from, you know, why do interest rates matter for asset prices to why do we have this investment category of tech media telecom? Um, like why is TMT a thing in the finance world to, um, you know, should you, should you angel invest or not? Um, why do investors care about demographics? All kinds of things like that. So it's like a lot of stuff where there's there's not going to be some particular moment where it was definitely the most salient thing to talk about, but um, it gives this nice library of um, 
conceptual breakdowns that I can use to to walk through different concepts. And um, I used to do that kind of ad hoc. Like sometimes I would write something and I'd be like, well, this, this piece will make a lot of sense to someone who knows what duration and convexity mean in fixed income. On the other hand, someone who um, already knows those things is going to just close the tab if I spend the first, you know, 500 or a thousand words explaining them. So like, I'll just, I'll just do this separately. And then, um, you know, one problem with that was um, I'd realize it kind of at the last minute. And so I'd have to write two essays that day instead of one. And that was challenging. So now just having this weekly schedule where I'm going to take a, you know, take a step back from what's happening right this second, and then write about the stuff that's going to matter over longer periods that will be good reference material. It's, um, it's a good exercise. And, um, it's been fun. Like we, we, we experimented with some, some different marketing things for, for capital gains, like, um, having a referral program where you get bonuses for getting other people to read it and stuff like that. And, um, that's actually worked reasonably well. And it's just like another, another source of growth. So I think from the, you know, from the, the standpoint of the diff as a publication, I think it's like, it's content that people like and that doesn't quite have a natural home in the diff, although it would be fine if it did. And then from the standpoint of the diff as a business, it is like it's lead generation. It's the top of the funnel. It's also just a place to experiment um, has slightly different branding, et cetera. So that's, that's why I do capital gains. Yeah. I, uh, I hope this podcast uh, does uh, serves those purposes too. And I, I'm a, I like the name, uh, we, we, the riff that we, uh, we, we came up with, I think is that. <laughs> Yes, the riff. I love it. Is a good addition to your your empire. Um, so yeah, let's let's go into some of those pieces just to give uh, listeners a preview. Um, I actually wanted to start on the demographics uh, piece, and, and 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 before we get into it, let me actually zoom out really quick and just say one reason why VCs uh, like me have gotten really into your 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 content. Um, you know, over the last few years is because. What, what venture investors learned is they have to understand not just venture, but also uh, macro. Uh, you know, for there was like a decade period where you could just focus on on is this a good company or not, um, and then all of a sudden, when uh, when things started to change in the economy, we, we all of a sudden started had to understand what's going on and how does that affect our business. Yeah, yeah, and macro macro is a really fun topic. Um, like a lot of these markets are. They, they have to be extremely efficient because there's so much money at stake. There are so many professionals whose whole job is, you know, figure out exactly what the Fed is going to do at the next meeting and what are they going to say and what have they said that's a hint and what have they said that's a misdirection, whatever. Um, so it's, it's extremely hard to have any kind of edge in that space. On the other hand, um, people will sometimes end up accidentally making some kind of macro bet. Like um, a lot of companies ended up being implicitly this bet that interest rates will be roughly zero forever, or they ended up being like implicitly a bet on long-term growth sometimes. Um, and this is going to be less true in tech, but some industries are um, partly just a really big bet on energy prices. So if, you, um, you know, if you're an investor and you invest in airlines, you are partly betting on energy, but you also have other macro bets like... Um, if labor gets more powerful, then um, you are you are capital in that scenario, and um, it usually comes out of your slice of the pie. Um, so, like, yeah, it's it's good to be aware that you're making macro bets. Um, annoyingly, a lot of those bets are really hard to hedge. Like, um, I think a lot of the tech world is implicitly long globalization. Um, 
we tend to benefit when there's more global access to capital, more global access to talent, when everything that is built is being built in whatever the lowest cost place it can be built is. Um, that's been really good for us. Like, you know, we, we have these nice iPhones and other gadgets and they are creations of globalization. It's hard to imagine them being built in one country. Like, I don't, I don't think it's physically possible. Um, at this point you have, uh, various unique things that are only, only fabbed in Taiwan or, you know, only designed in Japan, et cetera. Um, of course the, the software only, only designed by Apple in Cupertino, um, and also the hardware too. So, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to imagine this stuff without a global supply chain, but, um, global supply chains, they're kind of new. And, um, over the very broad sweep of history, there's, there's a little bit of a, a cycle to it, like, um, peak globalization, um, peak globalization at one point was 1913, and then there was this long period where countries got more autarkic and trade um, as a share of GDP slowed down. And um, I think that hit a low point probably in the 50s or 60s, and then we started seeing more globalization. And it's been swinging in that direction for a long time and um, has made a lot of things incredibly cheap, but uh, doesn't doesn't necessarily last forever. And I think the other thing with globalization is just scale, that... Um, one reason an iPhone is as cheap as it is, is that so, so many people buy them. And um, if you have a fixed cost to designing a particular chip or designing the latest version of iOS or designing your facial recognition software or whatever, um, that like the software could be a lot better if you 2X or 10X the number of users. But again, if there's a, if there's going to be a separate, um, a separate smartphone market in different geographies than um, the median smartphone sold in each of those is going to be a lot worse than what we have today. Um, there's this nice, nice little detail in the book, um, Seven Eves, which is science fiction, but it's Neil Stevenson. So um, it's pretty good where um, there's a, a bit, this is kind of, kind of spoiling, but it's like spoiling stuff that was why they talked about when the book came out. Like there's this bit, many, many millennia in the future where someone mentions that, um, they, that humanity has finally reached the point where they can make a smartphone as good as the ones that people had in the 2010s. Um, and it's like, that's, it's not a question of technological limitations in the sense of, can we do this? It's technological limitations in the sense of if there is a fixed cost measured in the billions to, to make like design these things and set up all the equipment to make them, um, you, you tend to, pay that fixed cost um, more willingly when there are a few billion people who could use them versus um, if it's tens or hundreds of millions, then um, yeah, the, the fixed cost just doesn't make sense anymore. So uh, yeah, that's, that's the macro piece. Um, let's talk, let's talk demographics. Yeah. Why should investors care about demographics and, and when? Yeah. So um, the nice thing about demographics is that you see all the problems coming well ahead of time. The bad thing about demographics is that the specific demographic problem of aging is really, really hard to reverse for many reasons. Um, and the reason I characterize it as a problem is that if you have um, if you have growth in the number of households being formed, then you have demand for lots of durable fixed assets. So new households, they'll need um, a house. Um, they need appliances, they will probably need a car or access to public transportation, but um, in the U.S. context, a car. And um, they they buy all these things right at the beginning, and they often borrow to do it. They generally borrow to do it. And so you have this ecosystem where people who are older and have um, are able to save money and also have demand for fixed income assets because they're getting closer to retirement, 
they they create this um, supply of money that is seeking long duration fixed income assets and um, a mortgage is, is certainly one of those. So you, you have this nice balance. Now, if you have um, too many young people, which was actually part of why the why inflation was so high in the um, 70s, if you have too many young people who are right at that age of family formation, you just end up with um, a scarcity of those fixed assets. So you get inflation and then a scarcity of the, the capital needed to buy them. So you have high interest rates. Um, if you have a surplus of older people with lots of savings, then that tends to push interest rates way, way down. Um, and it also has this paradoxical effect where if interest rates go down and if housing is mostly, it's this large fixed purchase of a long duration asset, um, the value of housing goes up when interest rates are lower. And this is actually, this is true regardless of how you finance it, because you can think of like if someone buys a house for cash, what they're actually doing is they're prepaying for many decades of rent. They're basically bundling up all the rent that they would pay on this house from when they buy it until when it falls down and becomes uninhabitable. And um, they're they're paying up front and they obviously have to think about, you know, the value of a place to sleep tonight versus the value of a place to sleep 10 years from now that there is you apply some kind of discount rate to that because you you could save your money. And um, and, you know, this was this was something I did for a long time was just. I'm going to save my money. I'm going to buy stocks. They have higher returns and um, I'm not doubling down on a bet on the local labor market. So I'm going to buy stocks and rent a dwelling. Um, that worked. It's just, uh, there's, there's not a lot of um, rental supply for um, houses that can fit a family of six in Austin, unfortunately, or I'd still be renting. But um, anyway, so you, um, if you have, if you're thinking about that setup, then one of the questions is, what is the return on my alternative investments? Like if I'm not putting all this money to housing and um, if the return is sufficiently high, then you, um, you don't buy as much housing. So the, the um, yield on housing, like the rental yield on housing goes down, or sorry, goes, goes up in that case. Um, and yeah, fewer people buy. But if, if rates are extremely low, nothing really has a super high return. And so the, the exchange rate between shelter today and shelter 10 years from now gets a lot closer to parity. And at, at literally 0% real interest rates, you do actually have parity. Like you are actually indifferent between when you get something because in financial terms, it's all, it's all just this endless present. And, um, and so that, that, um, tends to, that tends to raise housing prices. And then you have this um, very nasty feedback loop where um, one thing that delays family formation is people either not owning a home or worrying they'll never own a home. Um, they just seem to be more comfortable having kids if they, they feel like their housing situation is pretty secure. So um, you have, so if you have an aging society, you tend to get lower interest rates. If you have lower interest rates, you tend to have expensive housing. And if you have expensive housing, you have fewer kids and therefore an aging society. So you can get locked into either one of those equilibria. Um, and it's, it's pretty tough to get out because to get out, like if you, um, you know, if you ignore the, the money part, you assume that we are not either in this overheated, you know, uh, GDP is above capacity or in a recessionary slump, if you assume we're kind of close to the midpoint, then um, anytime you change policy in such a way that family formation is more affordable and so more people do it, you're actually lowering the standard of living for everybody else temporarily. So you are, you're making one set of people worse off in order to transfer resources to young families who are going to spend those resources on kids and those kids will eventually grow up and be taxpayers and all that nice stuff. But for, for the first 18 plus years, they are, um, they are a net cost and that cost has to be borne somewhere. So um, you end up 
you end up accepting, um, you know, basically with this trade-off between future standard of living, which is a lot better if there's kind of balanced demographics versus current standard of living, which is better if um, if we don't tweak things in favor of young families. Um, so, and then um, thinking of the politics there, one thing to think about is um, voter turnout rates. So young people basically, I wouldn't say they don't vote, but um, young people vote a lot less. Older people vote a whole lot more. Um, I think last time I looked at this, um, millennials were actually a larger generation in terms of just headcount than, than baby boomers, but would not be a larger share of the electorate until I think 2032. So there's this long period where um, politics is going to cater more to the interests of people who don't have kids and uh, who generally do own homes and you know, are kind of fine with, like the, the status quo works pretty nicely for them and politics um, partly for, you know, voter turnout reasons. Um, so like partly it is the fault of my generation, but um, the political system is going to weight the interests of younger generations a bit less. And then there are like epicycles there where um, you could say, okay, well, even if that's true on average, we also need to think about who actually makes decisions, you know, at the level of um, what is this campaign going to emphasize or what legislature gets um, introduced this session. And a lot of that is actually determined by, um, millennials and Zoomers who are congressional staffers and who may have this totally different mix of political opinions. But um, you also have a, a selection effect there where if you really, really want to have kids and have a family and you want to do it right now, one thing you definitely should not do is get a job working as a legislative staffer or working on a campaign. Like you probably won't be able to afford to have kids for a long time. You won't see them if you do have them. Um, it's just a, a bad call. So you, you end up with this, this terrible selection effect where a lot of the people actually involved in crafting policy are also uh, just a demographic that's not going to care as much about this stuff. So um, I, yeah, I think there's like this, uh, this sort of gradual slowing of the economy as things get older, as the electorate gets more cautious, as um, as the interests of people who've accumulated a lot of capital, um, not in the sense of like the super rich, but in the sense of like upper middle class people who are close to retirement, like their interests are very well represented in Washington. Um, and, you know, they're they're a nice, like they're not bad people. Um, some of my best friends are upper middle class people with lots of money, but not not plutocratic level wealth. Um, but they they do have different interests than maybe the long term interests of uh, of the country or the long term thing that's best for the economy. And um, we should we should keep it in mind. Um, I'm not sure if there are you know you can always imagine political solutions to this. There's also just the cultural solution of okay um, if if someone is actually going to have a lower standard of living because of these demographic issues, um, maybe it is fair for the parents to be the ones who bear some of that burden. And um, yeah, that's certainly like, it's the case for, for me and my family, like we would have more money and more time if we didn't have kids, but then we wouldn't have kids. So uh, not, not a great trade. The best argument I've heard or best critique I've heard of sort of the longevity movement is uh, this idea that, uh, you know, think about how bad the gerontocracy is now and how much worse it might be uh, if, uh, if people were living a, a, a lot longer. Well, that's that, that. So I think some of this depends on because like the concern with gerontocracy, it's partly this concern of the same people have been in charge for so long. And um, it is it is surreal to read books about political figures in the 70s and 80s and see the names of people who are still in office today mentioned as like, you know, young emerging forces in in the Senate or the House. Um, yeah, it's 
it's extremely strange and disconcerting. But if if they're able to keep operating at a really high level, then um, gerontocracy is not as bad. Um, you know, if they are if they've been accumulating their social networks and their institutional knowledge and things, and they've just had more years of compound interest, then that's really good. Like they can actually get things done. I think the problem you end up with is if they've accumulated a lot of um, good connections and they understand the institution really well and they're slowing down, but no one wants to say it and no one wants to admit it. Like we've all seen the video clips of people having, having issues, which, you know, are the kinds of issues you would expect someone to have at that age. Um, they're just not necessarily, they're generally not going to be as, as sharp and on point all the time, but um, they have, they have pretty important jobs. So uh, yeah, that is bad. Well, and it's also this idea of, you know, science advances one funeral at a time. And if there are, you know, fewer and fewer funerals, harder to get new ideas unless our aging people, uh, you know, have beginner's minds, uh, you know, so to speak. Yeah, I think I think that's reasonable. I think that is that is something worth thinking about. And there's so I wrote a piece on this a long, long time ago on Medium about the tyranny of the long generation, which was specifically about cases where some some field starts growing really fast, and so a lot of young people get into the field because they know they can get promoted fast, and then when growth stops, the average age of that field starts going up really, really fast, and the field starts getting more conservative. So now even if there are theoretically opportunities, young people actually don't want to go into that business. They don't want to take advantage of those opportunities. Um, my favorite example of this is that um, I haven't been able to track down the actual reference for this, but apparently there was this extremely long period starting in the 1930s where nobody went from Harvard to Wall Street. Um, they just they did other things. And actually, there's this book about, um, I think it's the Harvard Business School class of 1949, where a huge fraction of them ended up as um, CEOs or board chairs. They they all got very rich, um, but most of them didn't go into finance. They went into other, they went into some kind of industry instead. Um, so if you think of someone like Warren Buffett, who gets started in his financial career in the 1950s, he was probably 15 years younger than the young people he was competing with. And unlike them, he didn't have a personal memory of the depression and, you know, the stock market crash. Like he definitely knew it happened, but um, he didn't have this visceral sense of everything could collapse at any moment. And um, when he started his career, the Dow was still below where it was at the peak in 1929. So um, it sort of felt like the Dow can go up to about 380 and every time it's done that, which is once, it's gone straight down. So um, a lot of people in the industry would have just been extremely cautious. And um, they were also, they had to be survivors. Like they had to be cautious because it was just a really tough time to be managing money. It's also a tough time to be managing companies. So a lot of CEOs um, by 1950, they were whoever had been in charge in 1930 and had managed to keep the business alive. So they were extremely cautious kept lots of cash, didn't want to borrow, didn't want to expand. And it created this huge opportunity for a younger generation. So there were people like um, the people running conglomerates were able to find lots and lots of small companies that had lots of assets that were uh, whose value was not reflected on the company's books, or um, even cases where companies just had lots of cash on hand. You could buy out the company, extract the cash and get the business for free or close to it. So um, it created a lot of potential energy, but it took a really long time. And there was this feedback loop where you, if you were young and ambitious, um, everyone with authority in the financial industry would tell you that you're doing something really wrong. Like you remind them of every, every friend they had who went broke in 1929. So, um, so don't do that. So it takes a while to overcome that inertia. And then you end up with this youth wave where, um, this happened in finance in the 1960s, where 
all the older people are retiring. The marginal dollar is run by a young person who doesn't remember how bad things can be. And so stocks go up, everyone's really happy, but they're, they're making a lot of the mistakes that they're, that um, the previous generation made and that they have uh, not learned about or forgotten about. Yeah. And another, uh, well said, another side note is um, I was chatting with uh, Naval uh, the other day about the uh, sort of bull bear case for, for, uh, Biden in um in, in the upcoming election. And he said the bull case for Biden was that Democrats have figured out one, uh, mail, you know, mail in ballots, <laughs> um, and two, that they figured out uh voter turnout, um, or, or, or youth turnout, um, in that, uh, you know, they're, they're, he's bullish on their ability to, um, get more young people to, to, to show up for Biden. And, and for those two reasons, it would be, tr- uh, it'd be t- tougher for, for Trump in this upcoming election. Yeah. I, um, so I, went to a talk that Nate Silver did at the manifest conference a while ago. And one of the things he said was that this is going to be the most boring election of his lifetime because both of the people who are like both of the likely front runners, everyone has an opinion on them. Like no one, no one is going to change their mind about Donald Trump between now and the election. No one's going to change their mind about Joe Biden between now and the election. So um, it will be like he said, like odds are going to be roughly 50 50. Everyone will be mad at him no matter what happens. And so he's he doesn't really want to bother. Um, and I kind of feel that way, too. Like, it's just uh, it seems like a, a pretty um, it's going to be a very boring election with like lots of lots of noise, lots of outrage, but um, nothing really happening. Um it feels like, you know, aside from aside from just the actuarial question of will both of them make it to Election Day, um, you know, I, I don't see why we shouldn't just like have a quick vote right now, get everything out of the way. Like what what could we possibly learn between now and Election Day that would make a difference to anything for anyone? Um, I, I think on the question of like youth turnout, um, I don't know. Um I guess I, I haven't looked at the the most recent data, and there's always there's always noise in this stuff. So you know, the like a lot of people responded to um, Roe v. Wade being overturned, and um, that that drove some turnout. But those things, every time something like that happens, like every time there's a blip in youth turnout, um, it it feels like this is just this sea change, and everything is different forever, and then. Um, a couple cycles later, it kind of disappears into the noise. You rarely see these big inflections that just keep on going. Like there was a there was a lot of noise about youth turnout after two thousand eight because it did help Obama on the margin, um, and he he had a big impact on it. But um, then I guess uh, I guess the youth got pretty pretty used to the idea and um, then stopped caring so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, that, that that makes sense. I think there's also like the other thing that makes it boring is like the the policy differences are just not that not not as big like there's there're huge rhetorical differences but like I've sort of speculated on this idea of um Biden as state capacity trumpism like if you do want the wall to get built and then you also want China to be less central to world affairs you want someone to go after them and to sanction things like you you sort of get you get very similar policies from both groups um, with very different sound bites. It's just um, one group has has a lot more staffers who kind of know their way around Washington and um, is a bit more strategic in its decisions. So, what are the biggest differences? Is is it fair to is, would Trump be much harsher on immigration? We're, I think we're letting three million people a year or something crazy like that, or, or is it pretty similar uh, on on immigration? And then also foreign policy is, does Trump have a radically different sort of um, 
take on either the Middle East or, or you know, would he handle Ukraine Russia differently? Or what do you think are the biggest differences, uh, substantively, policy wise? I think it's. It, it is so hard to know what uh, what Trump is thinking, and it seems um, very influenced by who is presenting to him and what people are saying on Fox right now. So, um, like you know, there I don't want to I don't want to um, understate the fact that they are they are very different people with very different agendas. But I think one of the lessons from the Trump years was that someone can say a lot of really um, outrageous things and can promise all sorts of crazy stuff. And then it's a very different matter to actually get the federal government to do those things and um, to do them on any reasonable timeline or with any degree of efficacy. So um, that that sort of moderates the difference between them in practice that, um, you know, one of them has has lots of. Lots of interesting ideas that will not get implemented. And then the other one has kind of the boring half measure that half measure version of that that will get implemented and does it Um, on the immigration stuff. um, There's it. uh, One of the complexities there is just um, this question of how how rhetoric influences the actual behavior of current or prospective immigrants. And um, if you if you elect someone who has this vocal hardline view, it tends to discourage a lot of people from trying to immigrate in the first place. And um, I think that that ends up, um, you know, it has very different effects if we're considering a, like someone who is going, going around border checkpoints because they know they would not be able to get into the U S legally, but if they can get refugee status through some other means, then maybe they would be able to stay for a while. Like they have one decision function. And then if it's someone who, um, you know, they just finished their master's degree in, in physics in at Stanford and they really want to work for an American company and, you know, we're going to like torment them for eight years or something to, and not really give them any assurance that they can stay in the United States. Like it's a, that those are, are very different scenarios that are both pretty responsive to, to rhetoric on immigration. And um, I think it, it does come back to the state capacity thing where um, Trump actually did make some noises in the direction of um, wanting the U.S. to have a more skill based immigration system and being in favor of um, skilled immigrants coming to the U.S. And um, that's that I believe is part of the AI executive order. There was this plan to um, at least write a report about potentially maybe someday streamlining um, the immigration process for AI researchers and and other people associated with the industry. So, um, yeah, they end up kind of saying similar things. I'm, I think, marginally more confident in the Biden administration's ability to actually do that and change change the um, the, the wait times or the hit rate on um, the hit rate on a immigrants who want to come to the U.S. Um, actually being able to do so and being able to work here and contribute um, and be like the hit rate on people deciding that that is actually like the U.S. is where they want to be. Um, but yeah, I, I, uh, I, you know, politics, it is it is this amazing IQ, like you can turn your IQ, personal IQ dial down as far as you want by getting really, really into politics and really, really into any individual race. And especially, especially if you have an opinion about everything that happened in the presidential race, like in the last 24 hours, um, you can, you can make yourself really, really dumb, but I try to avoid it. Um, I, I know it happens like politics happens. Unfortunately, we can't, we can't completely escape it, but, um, it's just, it's less, it's less fun when a lot of the gap is just, um, there's like there's a lot of gap in just ability to implement anything 
reasonable. And so you, um, you're sort of, you're thinking on these two different axes of like, what things do I support in theory? And then what outcomes do I actually want? And if you're thinking about the outcomes you actually want, like how much can you actually influence who gets elected? Um, I don't think either of us live in swing states, um, probably are not going to be, you know, making, making the key donation that puts someone over the top in some other swing state. So um, yeah, it, it ends up, I think, I think probably it gets um, more, more attention than it should. And, you know, going back to the the question of macro and demographics, like a lot of the stuff that ends up mattering is this kind of gradual, slow moving stuff. Like nobody probably is going to run on a platform of, um, you know, we need to mark our social security and Medicare and Medicaid liabilities to market. And we need the government to do gap accounting and to disclose these massive liabilities. And then we need to manage those liabilities, et cetera. Like, that's that sounds like even I am bored just suggesting this, even though I think it should be done. But that stuff probably matters more to political outcomes within the U.S. than than a lot of the more niche policy ideas that um, that get a lot more attention. Uh, for foreign policy, obviously, there's like a totally different calculus, and um, that I think. Um, and you you had asked about that. Like Trump does seem to be. Um, a lot more isolationist than most U.S. presidents. On the other hand, he's uh, he's pretty impulsive, and so um, sort of like you know you you can be isolationist ninety nine percent of the time, but if you order a nuclear first strike and you're you're one you know the one percent of the time that you're not an isolationist, um, yeah, you, that that tends to not not get you counted as one of the great peacemakers and peacekeepers of our time. Yeah. Well, good thing uh, Trump is uh, calm and level-headed, and uh, yeah, if, if he wins, we'll uh, we'll all be able to trust uh, everything will be <laughs> will be okay. Um, the um, it's interesting. So I, I want to zoom out and and uh, talk about Zehan, who kind of put uh, Peter Zehan, who, who who through his books sort of put these ideas of of, of demographics and kind of American decoupling in in my head when I first thought of them a long time ago, and to, to radically you know summarize his view, and I'm going to ask where you differ is is you know he has a sort of thesis or explanation of hey uh post from post world war to to um the cold war it made sense for us to subsidize the, the the world or create the sort of global economic system that really benefited other countries in some ways more more than us in exchange for their protection against uh against soviets uh, against russia and um that that economic for you know, security trade stopped making sense once Russia fell, but that we kept continuing it for for decades because we just kind of didn't realize it. Uh, but that it was ultimately we were going to realize it, and and he predicted this even ahead of Trump, who started a lot of this isolationist um, sort of rhetoric and and activity, and and that you know continued with Biden um, in, in in some ways in terms of this broader decoupling. And and his thesis is thus is that any country that relied on American support um, would be in a tough spot um, or even fall in the case of China. You thinks it's going to implode because of their demographic challenges, because of their energy challenges, because of uh, uh, other challenges. Um, but then also countries that were strong before uh, U.S. set up the world order post-World War II were going to be uh, strong again. And he outlines, uh, I think, four countries. Was it France, Turkey, I think Argentina, might, might be one other one, um, that, that were going to be, going to be stronger. Um, I'm curious what you were, where you uh, were excited about with Zehan, you know, where you agree with some of Zehan's thesis, and more, more interestingly, where, where you differ. 
Yeah, sure. Like I, I found Zayn really refreshing because I, I used to be really into this idea of um, institutions as pretty much the only drivers of economic outcomes, and that if you have rule of law and free markets and pretty low taxes that you generally win and otherwise you don't. And that is like, that's still directionally true. Um, if you want to have a really high GDP per capita, you should look at um, whether or not it's legal to start a business and how difficult it is and things like that. But there are other elements to it. And um, I think, I don't know if it was Zehan who pointed this out, but um, a few people have pointed out that you can look at these, um, like some of the early East Asia success stories um, and the question was always like how close, like, like the the success stories were generally countries with a port, and um, the, so you've got Hong Kong, you've got Singapore, and then later on um, you had South Korea, um, Japan, Taiwan, etc. Like they they had these really nice growth paths, but they were all heavily export dependent, and so um, a lot of what they were doing initially was arbitraging that the fact that they had cheap labor and um, containerization made it easier to have a global supply chain. Um, so it was, I think there was, there was this kind of triumphalist sense, especially after, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, that it is actually ideology and that um, if you have democratic capitalism, you win. And if you don't, you lose. And it's just a question of when, but then um, a lot of the East Asian economic growth stories, it was uh, not very democratic, although quite capitalist. And then even within their capitalism, um, in a country like Japan, you definitely would not have described it as free market. Um, South Korea, also not free market. Um, Taiwan is this weird case where they did actually have this very fragmented economic system, but their their most dominant global exporter was also a government-supported one, um, Taiwan Semiconductor. So, um, yeah, it's sometimes I, I think part of part of my shift has been that um, competent people do can do a lot of good, and um, they sometimes they end up working in government, sometimes they end up working in the private sector. And you just need to be aware of where where the really ambitious people are going and what they're working on and um, make sure that that talent is being allocated efficiently and that they are, they're addressing the meaningful problems. Um, so I think Zehan was like, he's a good corrective for that, where sometimes, sometimes economic success really is that you have you have this good legal system, and sometimes economic success is no. You have um, lots of cropland and big rivers and lots of oil and iron and all these other kind of boring, tangible things. And um, I think we we tend to underrate the importance of that stuff when a there's a big ideological conflict and one side wins, or or b just um, like globalization in some ways like it was it was this very Zehani phenomenon where. Um, one of the big drivers was just it got really, really cheap to load stuff onto and off of very large ships. And so the cost of transporting one pound of stuff from Shenzhen to L.A. dropped by like an order of magnitude. And that just has a big impact. But it also led to this. Um, it's sort of I, I was kind of misled by this when I first started thinking about global economic growth. And um, it just felt like it just happens by default. But. It doesn't. It is. It is a creation of circumstances. Those circumstances can change, and um, I think there was this view that after the USSR fell, that everyone else is going to also drift in the U.S. direction. But um, it turns out that when someone like Xi Jinping talks about the collapse of the USSR, he doesn't say, "Well, they 
they are communist and we are communist and they proved that communism doesn't work. So we're going to get less communist over time. He says they were not communist enough and that they lost their legitimacy and that um, this all, like all their problems started with the Sino-Soviet split. And if they had just stuck with Mao, they would still be like the communists would still be in charge, etc. So um, they just had a very, very different view of what actually happened in the Cold War and why the winners won. Um, I think with, but I think it's, it's entirely possible to overcorrect in either direction. So like Zihan mentioned Argentina as, um, as a potential rising power and, um, Argentina is just this weird economic outlier. I really like the Simon Kuznets line that you have, uh, there are four kinds of economies in the world. There's developing, developed Japan and Argentina. Um, like none of the rules actually make sense. Argentina's GDP gap with the U S used to be, um, minuscule and now it's massive. Um, so there's there's presumably like unless they just had this catastrophic run of bad luck that just kept on happening, there are presumably some institutional deficiencies that mean that if you have a country that is sort of uh, you know maps to a lot of a lot of what um, made America so prosperous in the 19th century, um, if you have that, but in the southern hemisphere instead, like you don't necessarily get the same outcomes without having either similar institutions or at least like some level of institutional convergence on design patterns that actually work for mobilizing labor and capital to do useful things. So my, my guess is that it's uh, it should be cyclical. Like you should, you can, um, you sort of want to be like long Zehan when people are talking about the relentless march of democracy and freedom. And then you want to be short Zehan when people are talking about how the world's going to run out of oil or like the world doesn't have enough copper to electrify. And, uh, and, and so that's why we'll run out of oil, et cetera. Like, um, at some point those things, they do matter on the margin. They do set your constraints, but they set the constraints of actual individual actors who are making specific choices. Do you think Zehan is wildly wrong about China or what's the, what's the mental model of thinking about China's future as it relates to demographics or energy? I think so. Yeah, it's a, it is definitely very easy for, um, Americans who, don't speak Chinese to, to really, um, say dumb things about China. Um, and I mean that about myself, not, not Zeyhan. Um, so like, it's, it's super tough to predict what will happen there. My suspicion is that, um, so there's this long, so you can, you can view these cycles of Chinese legitimacy, political legitimacy, um, since, since Mao won the civil war and cycle one is the Chinese communist party is legitimate because Mao won. And then cycle two, after, after, you know, some, some complicated dicey circumstances, um, they, they switched to this model, the, the, the Deng Xiaoping model where China, the CCP is legitimate because real GDP growth has been high for a long time. And so if you keep backing us, you keep getting richer, your kids are richer than you. And that just continues. And, um, in one, um, I think it's in the Ezra Vogel book, he actually puts a number on this. He says that the CCP is legitimate if real GDP per capita is growing at least 4% annually. And, um, when when the growth rate was more like ten percent, at least the stated growth rate was ten percent. That that felt like a lot of margin for yeah margin of error. And now, um, you know the I don't know if the I think the target is five percent, and um, I think the consensus view is they are definitely going to report that the GDP grew five percent, but probably the actual growth was uh, was going to be light. But um, at the same time, China, um, like we have a lot more technologies of political control than we used to. Um, I think if you 
if you're running a police state and you can get the engineering talent, um, you're in a way better situation than you were a decade or two ago because they've got stuff like, um, you know, everyone has a smartphone. The smartphone links your messages and your payments and your location all to, you know, one one tech stack. Um, it's It's unclear to me just how much access the state has to individual records of behavior and whatever. But my guess is they, they have as much access as they, they want um, in, in emergency situations. So I think it's, it's harder for China. Like it's, you know, you can't really form an opposition party in China, but it's also even hard to do things like um, feel comfortable going to a protest. um, If you know that, that, the fact that you went there is going to be known to the state and uh, will always be in your file. And maybe, maybe the protest was okay when you went in 2023, but in retrospect, five years later, it was actually a very bad thing to do. And so now, now you're really in trouble. So there's a, there's a chilling effect there. Um, Oh, the smartphones also, um, the China mandated um, facial recognition to unlock phones in 2019. So, um, it's also matched your face. There are lots of security cameras and um, there's uh, and you know, China has sense time. So um, they have, they have lots of tools for matching faces to identities. And um, it actually, it adds this weird level of meta stability. So one of the things I thought about in China is, um, you know, they have this, um, it's well known their banking system has a lot of trouble right now. There are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of bad debt on the books. And one thing that sometimes happens when um, when a country's banking system is threatened, is that there are bank runs, and um, the thing that makes one of the things that makes a bank run really bad is just the visual of there's a very long you know, there's a line around the block to get into this bank and get your cash out. Um, but I I think that they are actually in a better position to prevent bank runs. So essentially, China. China's uh, like the minimum amount of capital you need for the Chinese banking system is a lot lower than it would be for a similarly levered banking system in a country that didn't have um, a one party state and lots of uh, lots of spyware. So I think that they they can potentially stick around for a long time. But um, I think that model, the model where there's not as much economic growth, but there's nothing that you as an individual in China can do about it. Like that model just makes China less relevant in the world. And um, it naturally raises the, the question of Taiwan, you know, will they, will they invade Taiwan or not? If they have decided they're going to, does it make sense for them to do it as soon as possible because the demographics get worse every year, or does it make sense to do it as late as possible because maybe China gets more and more ties to more and more countries and, you know, they're, they're waiting until they can get, you know, the, the nice vote from the UN passing a resolution saying that Taiwan was always part of China. Like maybe they're waiting for that. Um, it's very opaque. And I, I sometimes wonder what, what their incentive is with respect to either exaggerating or understating their willingness to actually invade Taiwan. And, um, and maybe the equilibrium for them is um, always always talk about it as something that's definitely going to happen, but not with any specific date, because once you start putting dates on the calendar and once you start actually having to move your troops, it's really obvious that you're doing it. Like you can't you can't really, as far as I know, you can't secretly execute an invasion of an entire island country. So um, there would be a long period where the U.S. can respond either you know through some combination of verbally just saying, don't do it. And also by deploying ships and troops. And then, um, yeah, then things get messier, then things get, uh, get more exciting, but, um, we don't seem to be there yet. Yeah. The, the, the other critique to the, the Zayn worldview is more largely going back to your point. He, he's such a corrective against sort of the, the, what people usually think determines success for, for, for societies that 
causes him perhaps to underrate things like culture, things like talent, things like um, sort of you know institutions as you governance as you put it, um, and and sort of you know there are ideas that have rich there are countries that have rich resources and high uh, you know good demographics but are not set up for success uh, because of their their problems in in other areas and he doesn't quite give that um, you know enough shrift. And, and, and perhaps one thing he also underestimates just is technology. Um, and he, he keeps sort of operating under current um, patterns. And, and this goes back to, or this relates to back to our demographics conversation and it relates to something Robin Hansen has been writing a, a lot about, which is fertility. Um, and and he, he, he goes as far as to say, he's written this a few weeks ago, that he thinks there's going to be basically a dark age um, where um, the underpopulation is going to become a, a serious problem and it will lead to sort of economic, uh, you know, global collapse. Um, and, and we'll have a dark period to which, uh, if you talk to someone in AI, they'll say, Hey, we don't need as many people anymore. Um, or we're not going to need as many people anymore 20 years from now. Uh, how do you uh, square that circle? Or how do you think about that? Yeah, it's a tough one. Like if you, if you bind the idea of an AI driven singularity, then, this this discussion doesn't matter. Like you know, you can have a thousand simulated children, and they'll all be earning you know eight figures. You know, building the Dyson sphere for you or whatever. Um, so yeah, you you I guess if if that matters, it's the only thing that matters. Um, but it's also very tough to predict. But is there a version of of not singularity? Is there a version where just AI just makes it so much more productive? Right. I, I think that there's there's a there's a version where it is basically the the IT revolution just over a more compressed time frame and with more extreme results, both more extreme results in terms of increasing GDP by a measurable amount, but also increasing the variance in potential economic output between individuals. So I think that that, um, that solves some problems, but like going going zehani enough um there's we don't have good ways to automate a lot of stuff in healthcare we don't have good ways to automate a lot of stuff in um well, i guess we have we have complicated ways to automate things in law enforcement like um you know we could have facial like cameras everywhere ubiquitous facial recognition and if you if you mug someone um you just can't you know, you can't access anything like the financial system shuts down and we don't use cash anymore. So you starve until you turn yourself in and then who knows what happens next. But like, um, barring, barring stuff like that, like a lot of this, a lot of the problem, a lot of things the government spends money on are just things that don't scale very well, where the outcomes are really hard to measure and, um, where there is, uh, there is actually resistance to measuring the outcomes. Well, um, healthcare, I think is a, is a good example of that. You, you actually need, human beings walking through the hospital, you need, you know, you need someone to actually um, inject the thing, clean, clean the wound, you know, check on the patient, etc. Very hard to automate that stuff. Maybe there's some room for that. And, you know, there, there've definitely been advances in things like robotic surgery or mRNA vaccines. Like there, there, there are definitely improvements, but it seems like, um, I guess with, with mRNA vaccines, like it could, um, could potentially be a, a really big deal for for other illnesses, but um, we we haven't found uh, we haven't found a revolutionary new way to get the FDA to move move faster, other than like have a literal pandemic where they are literally the reason that things happen at whatever pace they do. Um, and but uh, I think a lot of medical advances have been um, they've they've been about um, extending lifespans for um, very expensive diseases. So. 
Um, like the U S is a, a really good, like probably the best place to be a rich person with a very unusual medical problem. You can like probably the world's leading expert lives in America, probably the best hospital to get your procedure done is in America, et cetera. But, um, the, the everyday stuff, um, especially mitigating lifestyle related diseases, um, we're just not especially good at, and it just requires a lot of, a lot of manual labor. Um, or, I mean, it requires like there, it, it requires skilled labor, but it also requires people to actually physically do things with their hands. And, um, so you can't, you can't automate that very easily. Like if you look at where robotics works really well, it is um, assembly line type stuff where you are doing like something with an N of millions, um, then you can automate it really, really well. But um, there was this wonderful story in the information a while back about um, efforts, Foxconn's efforts to replace some of its workers with robots. And one of the things it talked about was that um, the, like the human hand and a tiny screw, they they have co-evolved together for hundreds of years where we've, um, you know, we've, we've developed like the components on the assumption that there is this um, little, you know, little motor. It has a really, really, really effective sensor. It can tell when it's twisting in too tight and it's going to break something. It can tell if it's not twisting in quite tight enough and the screw is loose. Um, we have to kind of rethink a lot of these components. Um, it would actually be interesting if someone starts um, setting an AI loose, um, you know, with, with uh, some CNC machines or whatever, and having it start to fabricate the intermediate tools and components you would need to build something if it's going to be built entirely by robots. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe we will actually have this wonderful manufacturing revolution and the cost of an iPhone will drop by an order of magnitude and um, we'll, we'll all be driving disposable cars that we just throw away when we've reached our destination or something. But um, we're, it's, Probably the the future of the economy is still pretty pretty labor intensive, pretty labor limited. And actually, um, there's there's this dynamic where um, when when wages go up, the low wage non scalable stuff, some of it just doesn't get done anymore. So there was this wonderful line from Agatha Christie talking about how um, when she I think in the 1920s that she thought that she would never be rich enough to have a car and never be too poor to have servants. And um, now most of us do not have servants, but um, you like one thing to expect if um, if we have this wonderful AI future, if wages go way up, is that uh, it makes way less sense to pay janitors. It makes way less sense to pay cashiers. So you actually have a world where there is like more trash on the ground in your office. The stains are there longer. Um, where no one smiles at you at a restaurant because their time is just worth more than that and they're busy. Um, so in some ways, like the world as it's experienced by someone who's middle class and above, um, the actual outcomes for services get worse, but then the outcomes for goods get way better. And um, I think that's like, that's a net net good thing. But um, there's, I, I think like the, the cyberpunk people were right when they imagined this kind of gritty, grimy future, that that's, that's actually what you get when your country gets really, really rich and your country is so rich that nobody wants to work as a janitor anymore. But do the cyberpunk people mean it as aspirational or as a, you know, a, 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 a negative corollary or something when they imagine sort of the grimy, gritty world? Yeah, they, they tend to imagine this as a pretty bad thing, but it's also just, it's what you'd expect from pretty good things. Yeah, like if you want, if you want like a really like nice, if you want access to lots of services, you want to live in a country where the country is very poor and you're not. Um, and that's, I think there's like that standard line from economists that if you're vacationing in a third world country, that is where you should get your haircut because haircuts are non-tradable. And so they're super cheap. Everyone wins. Yeah. You, um, 
you had a blog post on, uh, or in capital gains as well about this, this sort of, um, you know, this, the greatest chart of the century, um, you know, where Mark Andreessen and others like to point to it a lot, um, as it basically shows areas in which, um, things are getting much more expensive, things like healthcare, uh, education, housing, um, and, and things where, um, you know, products are getting much cheaper, like, uh, you know, uh, electronics, um, I can't TVs. I can't remember what were the other, uh, you know, products and toys. Toys, yeah. And the thing that people use like to say is, "Hey, the things that are getting cheaper are um, typically in sort of free market, you know, situations where things that are getting more expensive are typically heavily regulated, and thus, um, you know, their prices are distorted or they're not able to have much uh, innovation because it's just harder to to get into it." Um, you think there's something there, but that that doesn't quite paint the whole picture. But when, when do you uh, unpack that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So I think the other distinction is that um, non-tradables have gotten really expensive and tradables have gotten really cheap. And that actually makes sense in a world where China used to be mostly agrarian and now has a gigantic manufacturing sector, but wages are still still low-ish compared to the U.S., um, although that gap definitely shrank a lot. So that that makes anything that can be manufactured at scale anywhere in the world get very cheap very fast. Um, I did like one time I was looking at that chart and I realized that um, a lot of the things that have declined the most in price are things that are they're, they're like the, the kid consumption basket. And then the adult consumption basket of you have to buy a house and health insurance and pay for, you know, your kid's education. That's all gone way up in price. So my takeaway from that was um, if you got an allowance as a kid, you should give your kids an allowance that is the same or lower in nominal dollars because their, their consumption basket has deflated so much. But um, yeah, the, the big thing is like the big distinction other than the the regulatory treatment is that the the goods that have gone down the most are the tradable ones and as you reach a point where the global labor market arbitrage is getting more and more tapped out um, more of the costs are these unavoidable costs of raw materials and transportation and so prices maybe maybe those trends stabilize a little bit and um, on the regulatory side there's it's easier to regulate an industry that is purely domestic and non-tradable. Because if you try to regulate a uh, tradable industry, you end up just banning it in your country and then people import the outputs of that industry from wherever it's less regulated. And you can try to impose restrictions on other countries, but it generally just doesn't work all that well. So um, there's there's a feedback loop there where like if you, if you set um, zoning rules and so that's a regulation on housing that restricts the supply of housing, um, if someone wants to live in a particular neighborhood, like they have to comply with those zoning rules. But if you set some rule on, um, you know, what like the the acceptable level of workplace injuries in a TV factory, then the TVs just go somewhere that doesn't like the TV factories all go somewhere that does not have those rules. Yeah, that's, that's well explained. And, and so gearing towards closing here, maybe going back to the Robin Hanson, um, if, if you are a believer that, uh, you know, AI isn't going to automate most work soon and, and thus not having enough people will lead to, um, you know, noticeable economic um, impact. Are you uh, a fertility doomer uh, like like Robin in terms of your believer that will will have negative uh, uh, economic effect, significant ones from from sustained um, loss in um, or underpopulation, or do you think that something might change in terms of fertility uh, sort of uh, trends and um, will spike up again or or kind of get to replacement rate or more? Or um, yeah, how, how do you think about that? Yeah, the base case is that um, that won't happen and that 
most developed countries will reproduce at below replacement and that they will have this weird demographic pyramid where there are a lot of older savers and not as many younger workers and that that's somewhat self-fulfilling. On the other hand, um, if you're willing to not live in San Francisco or New York, and if you're willing to not have a super prestigious job, um, you have a lot more opportunities to move to a city where you can buy a house with a yard and have kids. So um, to some extent, there's like individuals do actually have that option. Um, I don't, I don't know if there's like a, if a policy, if some kind of policy guidance emerges from that, I think that um, probably we should just assume that the, the class of commentators and of um, people who do the granular research for legislators and um, the people who are working in finance and consulting and these kind of quasi quasi regulatory type roles where they are allocating cap that, you know, if we, if the U S had industrial planners, um, they would be the people who are currently allocating capital for, um, KKR or BlackRock or whatever. So, um, if, if that cohort tends to have fewer kids and to start having kids later, then probably the, the default policies are a little bit more biased towards the interests or, um, goals of people who don't have kids. And, there's not really an easy way to to push back against that other than telling them to have kids and um, or or telling them to um, rethink some of their views in light of the existence of children. Um, like it's it, it is um, kind of fun sometimes to to read someone's policy ideas and then just have this shock of recognition that this person does not have kids, does not know anyone who has kids. And that is why that is why they're wrong about this. But, um, you know, I might be, I might want to write a rebuttal, but I'm busy because I have kids <laughs> and I have to provide for them and things. So, um, yeah, we end up, I think we end up selecting for commentary from people who are part of a, a narrower demographic that doesn't want to have kids or is less excited to have kids. And um, as a consequence, has more free time. And, you know, if they're willing to tolerate roommates can live in very trendy places and have these high impact jobs. It's interesting because... Some people say that the um, you know fertility has been uh, impacted for broader trends, you know, women's education, women's empowerment, um, you know, c- career development, and thus you know the opportunity cost of having kids is higher. Uh, that 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 makes a lot of sense, and there are of course some amazing benefits that, that have come from that. Um, and 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 societies are largely you know ha- happy with that. Um, but then there's also this idea that uh, dating markets have just made it much more difficult for people for men and women to align. Um, basically, because the uh, the way dating markets are set up, or, or the way they uh, the outcomes that they lead to, tend to be where the the top twenty percent of men compete for the eighty percent top eighty percent of women, um, and so you have this sort of uh, I think they, they call it hypergamy. Uh, this sort of effect where the where the top men tend to have multiple women, and thus you have a lot of uh, uh, alignment. Um, and it's and of course you have trends like you know women outpacing men um, on on sort of the average in terms of sixty percent of women are college students, forty percent of men, or, or something to that effect. And thus the uh, you know you also have this dynamic where women want to date at a higher level. You know men who are above them or at the same level they don't want to date down. Um, and men want men are more flexible. But if if you know sixty percent of you know women college student women are less likely to date non-college student men and thus there just aren't enough good men and so it seems like in order for the uh, better alignment you know to happen between men and women either one of the few things needs to happen either men need to outpace women again 
which seems un- unlikely at uh, the averages of, of course, at the top men out- outpace women. Um, but um, on the averages, it seems like women are going to continue to outnumber men um, in, in, in college uh, admissions or, or otherwise um, uh, at the median level or women change their standards, which also seems uh, hi- highly unlikely. Um, and then maybe there's this sort of, you know, artificial wombs plus, uh, you know, uh, technology that can help uh, men and women have, have kids kind of without, without marriage. Um, so it, it seems like these trends are also making it more difficult. I'm curious if, if you have any edits to the character, my characterization of, of these trends and uh, what, what you think is likely. Okay. With, with the caveat that you said all of that, not me, um, do not necessarily <laughs> endorse all of it. I do think that um, I, I kind of feel bad being asked for advice on this because I met my wife on OkCupid when OkCupid was good. And it was basically a site where people would, it was like, essay contest basically and if you could write the most entertaining essay you would um you would find someone who also wrote an entertaining essay and um the two of you would exchange notes and you know that that would be the start of a wonderful very nerdy relationship um my understanding um i i have deleted the app so i can't confirm this directly my understanding is that it's less about that now and um a lot more about swiping on pictures and things like that um so I don't know. It sounds like a hellhole. Um, I would hate to be single right now. And um, it sounds like a nightmare. Um, I'm not. Yeah, I don't know how how to upset the equilibrium. But like, it's it's definitely true that if you have if there's a large college educated wage premium and if women prefer dating someone who is at or above their socioeconomic status and men are going to college less often than women like. Um, yeah, you, you end up with fewer, fewer men who hit the standard and, um, yeah, I I don't actually know. Uh, I have no idea what to do about that. Um, I think that there's, uh, like you can definitely imagine policy proposals where it's something like we, we require, you know, we're going to require global, you know, national affirmative action for young men until we get to the point where, you know, surveys show that most people who are single are single by choice and like everyone is happily paired off. Um, that's probably not going to fly. Um, I don't actually think anyone wants anything like that, but, um, yeah, I think that like broadly it's, it is good to be aware of mismatched incentives. It's good to be aware of cases where you can, you can satisfy on one dimension, but you're losing something on another dimension. You do ultimately have to prioritize. Um, I suspect that dating sites, they, they seem to have a pretty bad influence on the world. Um, I had a line a while ago in um, the a diff piece on match group where I said that um, you like, you can't treat Hungary as being serious about their fertility policies unless they nationalize all the dating sites and the best paid engineers and product managers in all of the country are all working for a state run dating site that is explicitly designed to pair people off into happy marriages where they will have lots and lots of kids and keep the pension system solvent. Like maybe, maybe you do have to treat this as actually something that is um, like, maybe you, you have to treat, the dating app space as something that should be a legitimate policy concern. Like you can, you can view it as just like any other negative externality. 
you know, there was a time when someone owning a factory somewhere um, felt like they had the right to emit whatever they wanted to emit and dump waste chemicals in the water. And um, now we've decided that actually, no, those the need to um, be cognizant of those externalities and they need to limit the damage and pay for the damage that they cause. Um, I think, but once once you start talking about that with dating sites, you have these um, much more fundamental questions because there there's definitely going to be a population that's happy with them. There's a population that's satisfied with them. There's a population that's creeped out by the possibility of the government saying not enough people are getting married, and so we need to nationalize Tinder. Um, so yeah, you end up with you end up with tough questions. Um, I. I have talked to people who are building alternative dating apps and dating systems, and a lot of those, a lot of those startups, they're they're born out of this loathing for the current system, and um, it's it's unfortunate that uh, a lot of these they tend it tends to be just really tough to get these alternative systems to work. Like the unit economics are a whole lot better if people are endlessly dating and always unsatisfied and don't pair off. Um, there are all sorts of agency problems. If you have a dating site that is like, we're going to match you for free, but if you get married, you have to pay us $50,000 or something, um, that, that creates all sorts of its own problems. Um, and I'm not, yeah, I don't know what to do, um, what to do about that specifically. Um, I think that they, like all of the, all of the policy angles are, um, abhorrent to at least some people, some of them are abhorrent to nearly everybody, but, uh, Clearly, we currently live in a bad equilibrium. Like maybe, maybe one one possibility is just we we will hopefully see some shift in social norms where it does become maybe less socially acceptable to meet someone online and maybe other other ways of meeting people that are more organic and natural and kind of less less about stack ranking everyone and setting this insanely high percentile cutoff for who you will even respond to a message from like maybe maybe that's better because like th that is sometimes how how we deal with the adverse consequences of technology um is the i think i talked on the last episode about the clay shirky thing with gin and how it just annihilated like this generation and how what people eventually concluded was like we're not going to make it illegal we're just uh, we're gonna have this strong social norm that you don't you don't drink gin at breakfast and um, maybe maybe we'll have like a similar reaction against dating sites and it will be seen as the the low status thing that it once was in the 80s and 90s but then then I'll have to be really really careful to explain to everyone in the world that um, dating sites were cool and pro-social for this very very narrow window of time in which I use them and then they became bad and have stayed bad ever since Great bring back okay but i don't know i don't i don't think i will solve um i don't i don't think i will solve um like the big questions on gender and the big questions on miserable like how miserable it is to be single and young in the united states today um unfortunately wish i had good answers for that would make a lot of people happy but uh no it's uh it's mostly tough questions <laughs> Yeah, we can't solve everyone's problem here. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's uh, let, let, let's wrap on that. This has been a great deep dive into uh, into into demographics, uh, deglobalization, and uh, some stuff on fertility as well. Uh, the next episode, we'll also do a deep dive in some of your other um, uh, pieces that you've done for both capital gains and also recent stuff on the diff. Uh, Burn, uh, this is great as always. Until next time. Yes, indeed. Had a good time. All right. Thanks for listening to the riff. Please go follow and subscribe, give us five stars, and check out Burns' excellent newsletter, The Diff, if you haven't already. 